Hello and welcome to The Switch. This is the series where we talk to inspirational people, each of them wildly successful in their own fields, about big turning points in their lives. I'm G Footit and I'm lucky enough to get the chance to quiz these people about the precise mix of skills, behaviours, traits, drive and sheer grit that got them to the top of their game. In particular, I'm interested in those pivotal points in their lives, the light bulb moments that propel them to the next level. I want to drill down into that exact moment to find out what it was that convinced these people to make the switch up. But the switch is also about you, and as the series continues to grow, we'll be taking your questions for our guests. Are you content with your life, your career? Are you considering making a switch of your own? Are you maybe looking for a new direction or the motivation to make a step up? Whatever your situation, I hope that you can take inspiration from the show. To fill you in about me, my name is G. I live in London with my husband and six-year-old daughter. And I work at the UK's largest provider of face-to-face financial advice, St. James's Place. And I'm involved in their academy, which trains people to become financial advisors. And so far, they've trained over a thousand people to do just that. People who have made a switch of their own from all walks of life. To help inspire others to do the same, no matter what kind of switch you're considering, we're talking to extraordinary leaders in various fields, including entertainment, sport, psychology, and in this episode, someone with a really unique perspective on both making changes in career trajectory and finding a way to align personal values and motivation. We've called this episode, Earn It, Keep It, Grow It, as we explore the power of money as a force for good for people and the planet. Our guests will talk about harnessing the flow of money to create financial well-being in a world worth living in. We'll also be discussing the importance of financial literacy and education for all ages. I don't personally recall receiving any financial education when I was at school, but it's something I've been lucky enough personally to be informed about from a young age as I entered the world of work at age 18, and I managed to secure a role within a financial advice business. And when I was there, I studied the entry-level exams and qualifications to be a financial advisor. And for me, that knowledge has certainly served me well. But today's guest is someone with an abundance of entrepreneurial energy. He started his career working in global markets and is now a fierce advocate for financial literacy for all. He's the author of two books aimed at improving financial well-being and understanding for young people and adults, and a co-founder of Rebalanced Earth, who aimed to make money a force for good for people and the planet. Today, I'm joined by Robert Gardner. Rob, welcome, and thank you so much for taking time to join us on The Switch. Gee, great to be on your podcast. Thank you. I've been really looking forward to speaking to you today. You previously worked at St. James's Place as Director of Investments, which is how we know each other. But before your most recent switch, which we will come back to, I know that you have a lot of knowledge and insight to share as we talk about your experiences and how you came to be an educator and advocate of financial literacy. Would you mind telling us a little bit about what drew you to the world of finance and investment initially? And how does your role at Deutsche Bank and Merrill Lynch change your perspective in financial services? I remember when I was studying at university, I didn't really know what an investment bank was. Obviously, I knew what you know a, a high street bank was. And my mum and dad were teachers and we traveled all over the world. So I was born in Holland. Uh, I lived in Argentina. My parents worked all over the Middle East. And from a very young age, I had a passion for currencies. I knew all the exchange rates to the dollar when I was like about seven years old, because that that was the currency against everything was based. And I was lucky to attend a few careers fairs and, and learn about investment banks and learn about global markets. And actually, as a summer job, I actually used to work in a bureau de change, so pre the euro. So if you remember those things, a bit like the travel acts at the airport, you know, people would come in with French francs and Deutschmarks, pounds. Actually, I was working in France. I was working down near Cannes. And so I, I've, I've just always 
love the kind of flow of money. So that's how I got into my my first job at Deutsche Bank. Wow. And it sounds like your dream job working in that currency exchange at that time. Yeah. I mean, it w- it had so much so much energy. And, and at the time, Deutsche Bank had ambitions to become the number one bank in the world for trading foreign exchange, which it did. It overtook UBS and, and Citibank to be the largest trader. And and so, you know, I used to get in at like 6.30 in the morning and, and the, the tickers going, the, the digital screens, the noise, the sound, the energy of it. I, yeah, I absolutely loved it. I fell in love with, with the job. Amazing. And whilst you were doing the job, you also had a passion for raising money and you were the star raiser for Cancer Research UK. Tell us a bit about that. Yeah, I mean, that was a bit a bit later on, actually, but I was approached in, in 2012 by Cancer Research UK to set up the Catalyst Club. So at the time, I, I, people probably know this, but Cancer Research UK is the largest charity in the UK. It does amazing work funding uh, cancer research. But they, they, they raised most of their money in £5, £10, you know, the 10K runs, the 5K runs, the London Marathons. Uh, and they had this really new novel idea, which is they said, you know, they wanted to raise a few million pounds and they want to create a major giving campaign. So the minimum ask was £100,000. And the idea was to fund risky research. So the problem is quite often the big pharmaceuticals, the AstraZeneca's, the Roche's, won't fund new science because it's too risky. And so a bit like the world of finance where you have venture capital, they were like venture philanthropy. So this was game changing. This was 10 years ago. So they set up the Catalyst Club and they asked me uh, to join the board. Uh, and and yeah, I, I happened to raise about a million pounds uh, for them. So yeah, I, I got the Flame of Hope Award because of that. But the, the really cool thing is 10 years on, uh, one of the programs we funded is Tracer X. And Tracer X would not have happened had we not raised that money. Uh, and Tracer X is going to make a meaningful impact in, re- in improving the survival rates from lung cancer, which is probably the worst uh, of all of the cancers. So it's amazing to see the impact from 10 years ago to fund research that will never have happened and then see that research transforming into creating new ways of identifying it quicker and better uh, and new ways of treating it and and therefore you know helping save more people's lives it's pretty cool wow and and giving back is part of your dna so how did you first get involved with raising money for cancer research that was actually a good friend of mine actually now he's become really good friends from uh, uh anthony and actually uh, his wife uh is mentioned in in, in my book she the, one of the stories uh about her topping up her pension when she gets a pay rise is is in my book but yeah, he actually just reached out to me at the time I was at Reddington. Uh, I think Reddington had just won an award. He approached me because I think he probably thought I was wealthy and could uh, make it. And I said, well, actually, look, I can't. But what I can do is I can help you with my social capital. So I know people who might be able to donate. So the best way that I can support this kind of new thing uh, is not by giving my own money, but by helping you raise the money. And they were like, okay, wow, that sounds really interesting. And that's how I joined the Catalyst Club. Wow. And so the next topic is also about sort of giving back. Um, I was never a member of the Girl Guides myself, but my daughter is on the waiting list to join our local Rainbows group. Still on the waiting list, unfortunately. But the reason she's on there is because I know that they instill some great values in young girls. Um, and you later became a Girl Guides financial education guide, um, where you helped educate children from the ages of four to 14. Was it that or was it your own children that inspired your book, Save Your Acorns? It took me a while to figure out what charity do I want to do? Where can I have the biggest impact? And so figuring out 
that actually I was very lucky that because of my experience, I'd learn about money from my mum and dad, certainly how to earn it and keep it. They didn't teach me how to grow it. It was working at Deutsche Bank and Merrill Lynch that I suddenly learned about investing in equities and, and growing your money. Uh, and so I'd already founded a charity called Red Start. But yeah, when my daughter was born, uh, that inspired me to write Save Your Acorns. And, you know, I wanted to uh, write a book that I would read to my daughter at, at the time I only had one. Uh, and and really the book is written as much for kids as it is for the parents or grandparents. Uh, and so, yeah, that was the idea behind behind Save Your Acorns. And so that was the idea behind Save Your Acorns. Because I was doing Red Start, uh, I wanted to help out with Girl Guides. By that point, I had two daughters. And it was a little bit selfish, if I'm honest, because by helping out, I got to jump the queue uh, because our local Rainbows was oversubscribed. And I happened to know one of the mums who ran it. And she said, oh, could you come in and do one of your Red Start days for us? And so that's how I got into it. Uh, but for the older girls, it was really about teaching entrepreneurship. Uh, but also my 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 sister who lives in the US, uh, her daughter was in the Girl Scouts, which is huge. It's enormous. Uh, and I also actually used to run an online course uh, for her for their money badges uh, in, in Texas. Fantastic. You give me a top tip there. Go and do something for the rainbow, see if I can jump up the list. Yeah. Um, but Save Your Acorns holds a special place in our house. Um, and it was through COVID that you were running webinars and reading your book for employees and the partnerships, families. And um, Zara, my daughter, we dialed into one of these webinars. And at the end, I think you'd emailed, we all got emailed as sort of a colouring in template. And she coloured it in and sent it back and she won. She feels like she was the only person that won an Oliver Squirrel. And that's the first ever competition that she has won. And so it, it's just planting these seeds. Like she has a real affiliation with your book, which is brilliant. Just as an aside, uh, Joe, who we work with, that was so much fun. I mean, and obviously COVID was difficult for everyone. And uh, we had this idea of doing this sort of like after school, like four to six p.m. Uh, webinar. We do two versions. We do an under seven version, and then we do a, a seven to eleven. And I'm trying to remember how many we did, but I think we probably reached over two thousand kids over over two years. It was uh, it was really cool, and not everyone won uh, an Oliver Squirrel. So, and it was amazing to see all all the coloring in come back. Uh, and one boy ended up doing a presentation that he then gave to his school uh, and the mum called up the SJP clan and said oh, I got a call from the head teacher and she said oh my god what has my son done and they said I we just wanted you to know that your son came into to school today and he gave this amazing talk about saving money and uh, so again it, it's those little stories it's that impact that that makes doing all of this stuff feel feel so good absolutely so you're a multifaceted entrepreneur. You started very successful businesses and consultancies, including Reddington, which you just mentioned, and Red Star Educate. Um, and I asked you before the show, what, what's with the colour red? Do you want to tell people why red? That's just random. The Reddington, the first business that, that we founded uh, in 2006, is actually named after Frank Reddington, who's a very famous uh, actuary. Uh, and so starting a new business we wanted a name that would be credible with that whole insurance and pensions industry so we decided to name it after Reddington and actually the day we founded Reddington would have been his 100th birthday if he was still alive uh, and the technique that we used was based on his his thinking the reason why Red Start was a nod to Reddington to the red from Reddington and start you know help young people start on the journey of saving uh, and investing and, and giving back. 
So Reddington are a pension specialist, yet in your latest book, Freedom, you mentioned that at that time you didn't have your own pension. So what age were you then and when did you finally start your own pension? Well, it was actually thanks to NSJP advisor Marta, who I'd, who I'd got to know. And I suppose this is the challenge of being an entrepreneur is that you're so busy doing your business that you forget to do the stuff for yourself. It's, it's like the chef who eats at McDonald's or uh, you know, the hairdresser who doesn't have time to, to, cut, their own, to cut their own hair. And and so there I was. I'm trying to think. It was probably 2015 or 2016, uh, because I wasn't an employee of my business. I kind of paid myself in dividends. I wasn't set up on the payroll, so everyone else in Reddington was getting a pension uh, automatically. Uh, and I was speaking to Marta, and she said, "I oh, you know, actually, why don't you set up a pension and you can get the last three years and carry it forward?" And you know, that's probably one of the most valuable pieces of financial. Uh, advice that we had and then carried on and when my first daughter Tara was born we set up a pension for her and and we did the same for for, for my other daughter Camilla as well. Tell us a bit about that then because your latest book Freedom it, it tells a lovely story about make your child a millionaire tell us how that really works. Yeah so what what I want to share with people is that actually having enough money when you're older can feel quite daunting but the magic is compound interest, the grow it part. And uh, using compound interest can make a huge difference. So the story I share is if you start a pension from birth with £5 a day and do it from birth until the age of 10 and then leave it, the magic of compound interest means that it will kind of roughly double every uh, every 10 years. And so by the time they're sort of 65 and retiring, uh, that money will be worth a million pounds which is just insane. And it doesn't have to be five pound a day. It can be 50p a day and it'll be worth a hundred grand. It can be a pound a day and it can be worth 200 grand. But uh, a, a, I, want, I think when you have children, you start thinking differently about your own life and children born today will live, you know, have a really good chance, a 50% chance of living to a hundred. So they really need to think about these things. Uh, and I think as a parent or a grandparent or an auntie or an uncle, it's the thing that you can do to to have the biggest impact. And as a side, I, I did something similar but different for my for my niece. So because she's in the US, college is like really expensive and they have a, a system a bit like an ISA or a LISA, but it's for college. Uh, and so I said to my sister, I said, look, I'm not gonna give Tegan any presents, but I'll just give her a pound a day until she's 18. Uh, and that will be worth about $50,000 to pay for about one year's worth of college fees. I mean, US college fees are insane. But, uh, you know, I wanted I wanted her to, at uh, 18, be like, oh, okay. Uh, and, and on the journey, she now feels like she owns Apple shares and JP Morgan shares. And I can talk to her about the fact that she's actually an owner of these businesses, which is really cool. So it was also a kind of financial education tool. Fantastic. And there was another anecdote from the book about your daily cup of coffee. And if you saved £10 a day, let's say, and what might that mean? Freedom is really aimed at sort of like 25 to 40 year olds and most young professionals, uh, it's not a pension that they're thinking about. Most most young people, not everyone, wants to buy a house or a home, a flat, a house. And, you know, even more so right now with the cost of living crisis. So like, how on earth am I going to save enough money for a deposit? And again, it was that same principle that I wanted to show that by giving up a vice 
uh, how could you get a deposit of 40 grand in 10 years? So the same idea that if you took the money uh, that you spend on coffee every day, if you sort of stop that habit and put it into a LISA, which is a lifetime ISA designed to help you uh, save for a property, uh, for a property, every four pounds you put in, you get a free pound. And again, the sort of magic of compound interest over sort of 10 years means that uh, I want to show how that could turn into 40 grand which for many people will be enough to get on the property ladder. It's amazing, isn't it? And I think when you break it down so simply and provide those examples, it's very thought-provoking and it's achievable. And I think that's the main thing. Like you say, it sounds scary. I don't know how to do this. I'll never have that much money. But actually, when you show people, it's just small, consistent effort that makes a really big difference in your future. Um, It's a brilliant book. I've read it myself. It was my holiday read and I thoroughly enjoyed reading it. And it was a financial book. So usually when people go on holiday, they're reading something a bit more uh, light-hearted. But... I didn't find it difficult to read at all. So I think that's to your your uh, testament, really. You've written it for everybody. Well, I wanted I wanted to use real life stories. So it's just full of stories, either about myself, as I said, my my friend Anthony's wife, uh, uh, my, my PA Miriam, also sort of famous people like Michael Jordan, Shaquille O'Neal, to, to really bring it to life through through stories. And just as an aside, my personal trainer just told me the other day that he'd finished reading it. And he's now opened uh, a, a, a LISA himself. And what he does is every time he realizes he spends a lot on Amazon. So what he does, he, whenever he goes on Amazon, he puts it in his basket and then he takes that money and then he tops up his LISA. And then the next day he decides whether he wants to buy it or not. But either way, he's now built this habit that makes him save, save that money. So that's really cool. And I love that. And you're continuously hearing these little stories from people that have read the book and have taken some action. And it, like you say, it makes everything really, really worthwhile. So we've mentioned Reddington, Red Start, Rebalance Earth is your latest venture. What's the crossover between these companies and how does your vision for financial well-being and education, how's that grown? One of the things that kind of guides me and the reason that I can have this kind of multifaceted portfolio is because they're all aligned around a kind of common purpose and a common thread. And so... Actually, I decided to stop doing Cancer Research UK because it, w- it wasn't aligned around that purpose. And so uh, th- that purpose has always been about helping che- people achieve financial freedom or financial well-being in a world worth living in. And, and the world worth living in came in probably after my daughters uh, were born because you suddenly start thinking, great, I can show you how to have a million pounds. But if there's no coral reefs, if there's no fish, there's no animals, if we've trashed the planet, what's the point? So... For me, it was this kind of double whammy of I want to really shine a light and and show people that it can be done, that you can create financial freedom. Uh, and But at the same time, realize that the trajectory one and the planet is not a sustainable one. But the good news is I believe in three things. Financial markets, you know, the FTSE 100, the S&P 500, the flow of money can be a force for good. I believe money can be a force for good. So where you earn your money, the company you work for, is it a good business? Uh, where you keep your money, the bank that you save it with, is it kind of practicing your values? Where you spend your money, are you a kind of mindful about the companies you spend your your money with? But the real the real magic comes from where you invest your money. So uh, the, 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 the stat I like to share is if you invest your money in an ISA or a pension over 40 years in a way that is engaging with those companies to to make them be more sustainable, to make them be better businesses, more profitable, but with a lower environmental impact, looking after the people they work for in the communities, 
that is 27 times more impactful than you know giving up red meat cycling to work flying less and so not only can you save to get 40 grand to start your deposit or a million pounds for your pension but you have a real opportunity to make a difference and create a world worth living in and then finally the way that happens is because your money is aggregated together like sjp 158 billion pounds now and that's with like fund managers so it's trillions of pounds and that's where the force comes from and that makes those businesses better businesses so my third and final one is that businesses is a force for good i do believe businesses can make revenues can make profit but can think about their environmental impact and think about their social impact and the thing I'm really proud of is that both Reddington and Mallow Street are what's called B Corps. Uh, and, and the B Corp is just a standard that really says, you know, that we think about our shareholders, but we also think about the people and the planet. And, and Rebalance Earth is going to become a B Corp as well. Fantastic. So this is the point where we're going to look at that specific light bulb moment when you've made switches in your life. So whilst remaining in finance-focused realms, you've switched between different roles and industries over the course of your career. From founding your own businesses and chairing the Children's Financial Policy Council, what motivated you to do what you did? Have you always had that guiding star around the educating people? I was very lucky. So in, in 2006, uh, I left Merrill Lynch to found Reddington with my co-founder Dawid uh, and I remember at the time you know my mum and dad couldn't believe it because I had a really good job right it paid well you know great company uh, I was doing really well uh, and I'm like oh my goodness why are you quitting are you, yeah are you mad uh, but uh, Dawid and I when we set up Reddington we applied to what was called the FSA so it's now the FCA, Financial Conduct Authority, but at the time it was the Financial Services Authority. And we literally wrote in our business plan application that we wanted to do to pensions what Jamie Oliver had done to school food. So at the time, Jamie Oliver was trying to go into schools and say, hey, by the way, it doesn't have to be unhealthy food. It can still be cheap, but healthy. Uh, and we wanted to engage people on pensions because it was so important, whereas normally people switch off on pension. Like, There's a boring pensions guy at the barbecue. So that that kind of core purpose motivated it, us, and and then in 2012 I went on this kind of entrepreneur course uh, called Dent, and I I met one of my first mentors, a guy called Mike Harris, and I, some of the listeners will actually know Mike Harris. You probably don't know his name. So he founded First Direct. He convinced Midland Bank in the 1980s to do telephone banking. That was truly radical, uh, and. The amazing thing is that First Direct today is still voted one of the best customer services businesses in the UK and around the world, and and that was kind of founded on 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 his purpose. And really, the 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 structure of his teaching was this idea of purpose beyond money, and he really got me to drill down and think about what my purpose beyond money was, and it, I realised it was sort of helping people. So. You know, we then updated Reddington's purpose was, you know, our purpose is to help make 100 million people financially secure. Uh, and it was then that I decided to set up Reddington uh, with the goal uh, of trying to help teach a million young kids how to earn, save and keep and grow their money. That has now evolved. Uh, uh, and now Red Start wants to change the game for 5 million primary school kids in the UK by getting financial education on the primary school syllabus. 
and, and, and have a massive impact. And I think that purpose uh, is the North Star that kind of guides you. And, you know, the other thing that, you know, because my parents were teachers, they, they taught me to be frugal, that although I had a good job at Deutsche Bank and Merrill Lynch, I never sort of succumbed to the keeping, keeping up with the Joneses, which is quite easy to do if you work in the city and financial services. Uh, and so I always squirreled away my, my money. And what that meant is I had enough money. I didn't pay myself for three years when I founded Reddington. So I'd saved that money and that gave me the financial freedom to quit a really well-paid job uh, and and start a business. I think that's a really important point to bring to life. It's that financial preparedness for the career change. I mean, three years, I would imagine, is quite a long time that somebody can sustain not being paid. But you certainly need to plan for maybe a year where you've got all of your essential outgoings covered. Um, and then again, you were SJP and now you've left that extremely fantastic job to restart something again. So of all of these poignant moments, is what would you say is your biggest switch point? I mean, I think the the mission I'm embarking on now is my biggest mission yet. I mean, my goal is to enable the flow of private capital to protect and restore nature. I mean, unfortunately, the good news of the last 50 years is that, you know, we've seen population growth grow from like two and a half billion people to eight billion people. We've seen economies grow. We've seen global markets grow. That's all the good news more people in education, people living longer, uh, but more democracy, really good stuff. But we've done this at the expense of our environment, clean air, climate change, the degradation of, uh, of, of biodiversity. We have lost 70% of our plants and animals in the last 50 years, and that just won't be sustainable for the next 50 years. And so, uh, to turn that around, we need to be investing about $700 billion globally to protect and restore nature, and it can be done. And so I thought, I think I was crazy enough to think I might be able to make an impact. You know, all of my knowledge about pension funds, about foreign exchange, about investing. Uh, what I didn't share is when I was at university, I studied geography and glaciology and hydrology. Uh, and so it's almost like an opportunity sort of 25 years on to kind of go full circle and think, how can I connect financial markets with protecting uh, and and restoring nature, uh, and y- you know, you'll know as as a mother, uh, you know, as a parent, I didn't want to have that conversation ten years from now and say, "But Dad, you knew about climate change, you knew about biodiversity loss. Like, what did you do?" Uh, and so, you, it's right. I had an amazing job here, and I had an, a wonderful time. Uh, but my decision making framework was that that classic ten years from now, what would you look back on and regret? not doing and and I thought I had to give it my best shot. Absolutely. And what have you found the key traits have been that have fueled the drive and the sense of purpose throughout your career? You know, when I started at, at Deutsche Bank and Merrill Lynch, they were great jobs. They weren't particularly purposeful. They were good. They were like working with smart people, really interesting work, high energy, dynamic. Uh, you certainly had to work uh, hard. Uh, but as I said, I think you know, in founding Reddington with Dowid, A, having someone who you have shared values with, this kind of, although we didn't know it then, but this purpose that we wanted to do pensions, what Jamie Oliver had done for school food. So uh, for me personally, it's been having that really clear purpose. I have crazy business ideas all the time, but I don't follow them through because they're not my purpose thing. And I think you have to confront your own mortality and 
ask yourself if I got run over by a bus tomorrow, like, you know, what impact, what dent did I have on the planet? And so if I know that Steve, my personal trainer, has opened up a LISA account or someone has opened up an emergency savings account or uh, I've enabled the flow of money to sort of protect and restore some seagrass, then I know I know I did my bit. And how do you stay focused through the bumpy ride? Because any startup, be it a financial advice business through SJP Academy versus what you're trying to achieve or achieving, how do you stay focused when sometimes it might feel tough? I think this is the hardest thing. Can I read a quote? Uh, someone just, I read this book a while ago and it's for, for anyone who's a sort of startup, it, it, the book is called The Checklist Manifesto. It's by Atul Gawande, How to Get Things Right. Uh, and he says... You would think that this would be whether the entrepreneur's idea is actually a good one, but finding a good idea is apparently not all that hard. Finding an entrepreneur who can execute a good idea is a different matter entirely. One needs a person who can take an idea from proposal to reality, work the long hours, build a team, handle the pressures and setbacks, manage technical and people problems alike, and stick with the effort for years on end without getting distracted or going insane. Such people are rare and extremely hard to spot. I think becoming an SJP and advisor, becoming an entrepreneur, you have to do all of those things. And that is the hardest thing. And, you know, Reddington is 17 years old now. The, 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 the adage that, you know, it takes 10 years to become an overnight, overnight success is absolutely true. Freedom, the last book I wrote, I started writing three, it took me three years, it's 30 drafts, it's that never giving up, persistent, always moving forward. Uh, I think that is the hardest bit, it, it is that discipline. And I think for me, that's why the purpose is the motivation. If I'd written a book about something else, I would have given up. But I feel so passionate that I want to help people about money that I never gave up. I feel so passionate about protecting and restoring nature and the planet that hopefully I won't give up. And I think that is the key. And it, it, it I think is the biggest challenge of being an entrepreneur is that focus and discipline. I can remember, Rob, meeting you in the recording studio on that rainy day when we were filming for the Academy and you mentioned your book to me. Um, and I came along to your book launch. And in the book launch, you said that the time that you worked on it was between 6 and 8 a.m. at the weekend. So I just think... Those little anecdotes give people a real feel for, like you say, the effort, the energy that's required. You find the time because you genuinely want to. And that's the difference between, I think, success and failure sometimes when people start a business. No, 100%. And I like you, I've, you know, I've got a family, I've got kids. It's trying to do all of this. I also want to be a good husband. I want to be a good dad. Uh, and so writing the book was a hobby, a pursuit. Uh, and... The only time I could find that wouldn't impact our family life was six to eight AM on the in the mornings. And yeah, you know, some weekends I was too tired to do it and I couldn't. And that's why, you know, sometimes it wouldn't move forward for two, three weeks at a time. And then I'd be like, Okay, right, I'll I'll push it again. I'd take the book on holiday and uh you know, we while the kids would be playing in the pool, I'd be sat by the pool uh editing the book. So yeah, absolutely it, it is carving out that time. To, to keep pushing it forward. Because it means something to you. Um, and before we were talking about um, career change in general and Miriam who features in the book, do you want to share a bit about her 
story because I think it's a really fascinating one. Yeah, so I very lucky to to meet Miriam about seven eight years ago. She actually applied to become my PA when I was working at, at Reddington. Now Miriam didn't go to university, got a job straight out of school, aged eighteen, uh, and unfortunately, like many young people, uh, succumbed to kind of store card credit. Now it's buy now, pay later, but for her it was store card credit, and it you know it feels great, right? You walk onto Oxford Street. For her, it was walking into Karen Millen, 20% off, sign up to have a card, buy some nice clothes. Those clothes are long gone. But so when she started working for me, she was in serious store card debt. And you probably know that the APRs on these are sort of like 30%. And, you know, being in debt is horrible. It's sort of like being strangled and, and, there I was teaching young kids about money. They were coming in. She could see it. And I think it just rubbed off on her. And she's like, Rob, how, you know, we, we just talked about it. And, you know, what can I do? And so she did all the hard work. The One of the points in my book is it's good to talk about these things. Don't bury your head in the side. Be aware of the problem and take action. So she paid off her debt. Uh, then uh, she was interested in the idea of, you know, her and her partner saving to buy a home. And I, I'll never be able to afford it. Uh, and then I told her about Lysa's and the coffee story and, you know, what she did, you do have to sacrifice something. So she moved back in with her mum. Uh, she was in her mid thirties. Uh, and with the rent she saved, she put that into a Lysa. And just last year she bought her first house, which is really cool. And then when she came to, uh, work and with me here at St. James's Place, she was my PA and, and later became my sort of more like my chief of staff. Uh, she took the opportunity that that is amazing about this place to study and take the exams to become a wealth manager. Uh, and, you know, she she is amazing with people. She's experienced the challenges herself. Uh, and so she's taken all seven exams and she's joined the academy and she's just joined uh a, a really fantastic practice. And I know she's going to be an amazing financial advisor and now she's an entrepreneur. So she's got to find clients. She's got to do all of those things in the quote that I, I talked about. And, you know, she's a mother of two as well. Uh, but yeah, what, what I think Miriam's story shows that if you have the will, but also the skills and the habit and the support, you can, you can make these transformational changes. Absolutely. And at the beginning of the conversation, you mentioned your network in the fundraising example. Um, talk us through how that helps you when you're trying to launch a business. Yeah, so a lot of people ask me uh, about entrepreneurship. So, actually, you know, we talked about the Girl Guides earlier. I used to teach entrepreneurship. I think the two things uh, that I think are interesting about entrepreneurship: one is that entrepreneurial businesses have just explosive energy. Now, the biggest challenge, though, is like a rocket, like a SpaceX rocket. You have to get that energy and channel it in the right direction. I think we briefly talked about the focus uh, and the discipline, because otherwise it just goes off everywhere, whereas what you want it to do is like be like a rocket and send the rocket up. You then need to make sure your rocket is pointing in the right direction. What customers do you want? What's your customer proposition? What problem are you, are you solving uh, for them? But in terms of like the skills and values that that I think are important, the first is financial capital. So, you know, the reason I was able to leave Merrill Lynch at 27, the reason I was able to decide to, you know, leave SJP and start a business and, and go back to startup life 
is because I'd built up that financial base. So financial resilience, financial freedom is important. The second is intellectual capital. Never stop learning. I read voraciously. I listen to podcasts daily. Uh, I'm loving, you know, in my new world, I'm learning everything about AI of forest elephants or carbon credits or how to protect and restore seagrass. So never stop learning. I think some people feel that, you know, once they start work, they don't need to learn everything else. And that, I think that's a big danger, especially in the world today with AI and, and technology. The third thing is social capital. And again, it's easy just to focus on the people you work with and you know, but really broaden that network of people who know you and crucially that will help you. And you you need a framework to do that. And very few people think about this. And I think a lot of people think that's networking and it sounds a bit salesy, but you need to build relationships. You need to nurture those relationships and you need to grow those relationships and you never know how they can help you. And then I think finally the fuel, and we've touched on it already, is that purpose capital. So figure out what you love because when the going gets tough, that will give you the energy to make sure you don't give up. Brilliant. Um, we spoke about beforehand your framework for your network and you used me as an example. Do you want to talk us through those steps? Because I thought it was really interesting. Yeah, it's actually uh, a guy called Andy Lapota, and I, I mentioned it in, in Freedom. So he shared it. It's the seven steps of professional relationships. So, uh, so I use the analogy of being at the school gate. So one is uh, they recognize you. Oh, it's that... Uh, you know, mother at the school gates. Uh, two is they know who you are. Oh, it's Chief Foggett. She works at St. James's Place. Or it's Rob Gardner. He works at Rebalance Earth, as opposed to Tara and Camilla's dad. Uh, uh, three is they like you. Uh, it's, oh, you should speak to Juice. He's really nice. Four, and this is crucial, they trust you. By the way, it takes about seven hours and about four different interactions to get to trust. And the mistake people make is they try and get too quickly to trust. Or it's very hard to do a transaction with someone, where it is a transaction, get someone to help you or do something unless you get to trust. And so I always get people to think, where are you on that step? And really your next goal is to at least get to trust. Here's where it gets really interesting. Five, they're a supporter. So it says, oh, gee, you know, could you really help? You know, I've just launched a book and you've got this amazing podcast. Could you help me out? Yeah, I'd love to come on my show. Six is advocate, which is what you've done, which is you were on holiday and you posted a post on Instagram. Going, I'm reading Freedom. It's a great book. I didn't even ask you to do that. You just did that. And then seven is you become professional friends uh, through all of this. But from a business development perspective, whether you're a financial advisor, whether it's me and Rebalance Earth, there's a whole load of new stakeholders I now need to get to know and influence. And I need to go through all of those seven steps and and i'm really thoughtful about how i'm building up my social capital because i know that's what will help me grow my business well i think that's going to be really helpful to anybody starting out in business and just to have that framework and thought process around who do i know what phase am i at what else can i do to help this process um whether that's become a client because you're a financial advisor or anything else that you might need them to do so thank you um there are a couple of other really interesting anecdotes in your book that I enjoyed. Um, and they were around staying focused when things go crazy. And I remember when you were at SJP, you used to talk about sirens. And that's when you're investing money. But is it true to say that that is also when you're running your business that can help you? Yeah. So the story of the sirens is that 
when you invest in the stock market, it's it's a bit crazy. It's like a roller coaster. It goes up and down. We all want the end result. We all want to see our money grow. But the hardest thing is staying invested. And the the sirens, like the story of Ulysses and the sirens, where the sirens come and get these sailors to shipwreck, is that we kind of shipwreck ourselves. You know, we open the news, whether it's on our phones or on social media, and the economy's stalling, markets are down. It's always bad news, bad news sells, and it will always be bad news. And it gets us to do crazy things. Our emotions override us. And so what Ulysses does is he ties himself to the mast and he gets his men to put beeswax and he blindfolds them so that they don't succumb to the call of the sirens. They can see them and sail safely past. And I'm trying to use that analogy to say you need to invest for the long term for decades, not days. The same is true for business. Uh, and I like to think about what you can control and what you can't control. Uh, so in my world, we're trying to protect and restore forest elephants and get them to in invest. And uh, we've got an opportunity to work in Liberia uh, and IBM and, and get the flow of money to protect them. And it's really cool. But there was an announcement in the news the other day and I said to the team, I said, we can't control that. Let's not worry about it. Let's just focus on the things that we do. You know, we're really clear on what we're trying to do. We're trying to enable the flow of private capital to protect and restore nature. Are we doing everything we can do? Are we working with IBM on facial recognition? Are we working with the Liberian government? Are we working with other NGOs to make that happen? Let's just focus on that. That stuff is noise. It might be important and it might impact what we're trying to do, but there's nothing that we can do about it. And I think that is the parallel focus control the controllables and be really clear what are you in control of and focus on that and the stuff you're not in control of that's life and sometimes it will work for you and sometimes it'll work against you i love that and and just in speaking with you today i think one of your superpowers really is being able to look at things in that long-term view and the benefit of them in the future uh, in a couple of ways so one was miriam's story as to you know, this this feels scary to do this career change right now. And what was it that you said to her about the future? Yeah, so look, you know, uh, Miriam was my PA. And so, uh, you know, earning a, a PA salary and, and actually a, a good one because she was, you know, uh, I was a FTSE 100 executive at the time. Uh, and in taking this role, she's going to have to take a pay cut, she's got the kids, just take a house. Uh, but I said, look, you know, you get to build a business, you get to be an entrepreneur and it's very rare that you have the opportunity where you can build a business that 10, 15 years from now will be worth three million pounds. And that's the prize. And if that's what you want, and that's married with the fact that you want to help people about money, you want to help people not make the mistakes that you do. So the purpose and the value, if you get your values right, I always think if you can make an impact, have fun, the money will flow. And the point I was trying to make to Miriam is that you could build an amazing business worth three million pounds 15 years from now. Uh, but you've got to be prepared to do all the things we talked about earlier to do it. I think often have the idea of change in their mind, but the hardest thing for them might be choosing the best time. Is there really a best time for this stuff? I don't think there's ever a right time. And uh, I was just thinking, maybe listening to me to make it sound easy. When I left Merrill Lynch to start Reddington, when I decided to leave SJP and start Rebalance Earth, I'd be lying if I didn't have like that lump in my throat. Like imagine being stood on the side of a cliff and you're going to jump off into the sea. If you imagine that feeling, 
at some point it is a leap of faith. You are letting go of the certainty of a good job. Merrill Lynch, St. James's Place, to do something new with no money, with no clients, uh, that is hard. But there is never a right time. You know, the first time I wasn't married, I didn't have kids. So I, I think that was easier, if I'm honest. It was easier to make that decision there because I, when I, I justified it to myself because I thought, worst comes to the worst, I come back two years later with a tail between my legs and I get a job back at a Deutsche Bank or a JP Morgan or an RBS. Uh, with, you know, with this new role, it's it's difficult. You have kids, you have a house, you have mortgage. You know, you, you've got responsibilities to people other than yourself. So that was the big difference. Uh, but there is, I promise you, there is never a right time. And, that, and actually, that was Miriam's question. She was like, well, maybe I should go and get another job and have enough money. I was like, no, Miriam, the opportunity is now. This is what you want. You've got to take it. And it will feel scary. If it doesn't feel scary, it would be wrong. And and like you said before, it's, it's having a degree of financial cushion and comfort. So you do need to prepare for it. But then, yeah, be ready to make that move and ready to make that jump. Yeah. And so you mentioned Reddington, how long that was before it was a success. In the book, you mentioned Tesla was 18 years before it reported a profit. And in my life, I've had the influence of my dad, who's an entrepreneur. He makes cricket balls, Duke cricket balls. So... When anybody talks to him about his overnight success, it, you know, we all lived through it. You know, it's a 40 plus year overnight success story. But the one thing he has in common with you is that absolute drive and determination to do the very best he possibly can. And his passion for the sport and the quality of that ball that he produces is like nothing I've ever experienced before. So I'm definitely influenced by people like that too. So Rob, it's been absolutely fascinating speaking to you today. Is there anywhere where people can find you? Where would you direct them to? Yeah, I mean, the best place is either LinkedIn. So Robert J. Gardner, if you type that in, or, and that is also my social handle. So at Robert J. Gardner on X uh, and and on Instagram, that's the best place to, to find me. Thank you. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been a real pleasure. Well, thanks. I've, I've loved being on. It's been great seeing you again. And uh, I love your podcast.